Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan. How are you? How's your computer? Uh, my computer is garbage. What happened? Well, I updated the operating system, Dan. Um, from what to what? From whatever it was to whatever it is. <laughs> to the very latest, maybe, Mojave? Uh, yeah. Well, it was just, you know, it was the thing that where it said, upgrade your thing, and I did. Yeah. Now, now it's, um, it's not quite bricked, but, boy, everything I do is super slowed oh, down. Man. That sucks. Yeah, it really does. And for the really first does. time in as long as I can remember, I'm getting a little occasional little Skype issues from Skype you. Skype issues. Well, let me. Let, uh, there's also a problem here, which is this. Uh, I turned on this. Um, I turned on some Google thing that's uh, like a, a auto upgrading. Like Google Photos or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. I don't want to talk about it. It just makes me depressed. But I just I just figured out how to pause it. Yes, pause. I was going to suggest pause it, and then we'll resume it after the show. So I paused it. I don't I don't really want to resume it. I want maybe I never want to, resume it then. I, I want to go back to a time when all I had was a Walkman. <laughs> how are you, Dan? Uh, I'm doing fine. Good, good, good. Can't complain. Good, good. Well, that's something yeah. in this modern age. Not be able to complain. What are you gonna? How what, how are you gonna communicate with people? If I don't complain, yeah, that's how people talk nowadays. Yeah, people get they get offended and then they um and then they talk about it. Well, or they just are like talk about how they're hurting or about how they're uh, what yeah, what people have done to them. Uh huh. Mm. What they're afraid of. It's all, it's all just complaining. Well, I mean, it is, it is midterms. Yeah. That's what I keep hearing. Mm-hmm. But you know about that. You, you go and you vote and, uh, and I do actively participate in your local government and things like that. I do. I'm do. I'm very engaged. The most engaged. No, no, a lot more engaged than me. People that are on the barricades. People that are, uh, you know, put that politics is really what they, what they do. That's their sports. Yeah. That's not me. I'm not that, but, uh, I'm engaged in the issues you, you could say, but you know, I, I, I struggled, uh, I struggled with the, like how to participate in the get out the vote campaign this time because I, I got, um, you know, people reach out and they're like, you know, we'd really love you to be part of this get out the vote thing. And um, what what is that for people who don't know what that is, or uh, international listeners who who are not who can't vote because they have a, a king or something like that? What is it? What are uh-huh. we talking about? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, like um, Germany has the king of Germany, and they don't they don't let yeah, you you can't oh, vote for him. He's there for king of Germany. Yeah, the famous king of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, well. So in the United States, we all, I mean, the, uh, the right to vote is enshrined and, uh, and over the many, many moons of the United States, the two plus centuries, we've extended the right to vote, which, which we call the franchise. 
we've extended that to more and more people. So initially when the United States was formed, it was the right to vote was white male property owners in sort of certain areas and mm-hmm. certain amounts of property. I mean, it was a pretty limited number of people uh, that had the vote because the idea of, of what democracy was was different then, which is to say they didn't feel like the mob, right. the mass of people, right. were educated enough or capable of understanding the issues enough that they're, that if they were given the vote, that that wouldn't just be an enormous problem because the mob tends to vote emotionally and tends to vote and tends to be easy to sway with um, nativist xenophobic arguments, right. you know, like the mob at, in 1780, uh-huh. uh, a bunch of just sort of hard scrabble American farmers or whatnot with a, with a third grade education the 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 founders as we call them did not see that they were very good voters i guess but as time's gone on the democratic experience, experiment of the united states has extended that franchise to more and more americans and now the only people that can't vote are felons convicted felons who have not had their voting rights restored and anyone who hasn't registered to vote or now um, we're discovering a lot of people who have registered to vote who have been unregistered by political operatives. Right. It turns out there are a lot of people that can't vote for various reasons. And, and the constant struggle between the two parties, um, the perception is that the Democratic Party represents a greater swath of the um, traditionally, the Democratic Party represented a greater number of minorities, and I'm talking about traditionally in the 20th century, right? Um, and you know, and poor people, and the Republican Party sought to kind of keep those people away from the polls by various means, because um, it's harder to get poor people to to get to the polls, you know, it's yes. sometimes difficult for them even to travel to the polls. And so the conservative party would engage in all kinds of, of, uh, duplicitousness to keep the, the poor people away from the polls. And the Democrats were always trying to get as you know, like pack the polls with as many poor people, regardless of whether they were engaged politically. It was just like, let's, we had the numbers or whatever. That's all, that's all politics. That's old, old politics. Right, sure. But now the sense that there is um, in the youth culture a kind of ennui where people just aren't voting because they're either cynical or bored or don't know about voting. I mean, honestly, there are people that couldn't point to Texas on a map. So there, there are lots and lots of people that just don't even know what voting is or don't. They just don't feel it is relevant to them. And so when we have these big elections, it would maybe astonish you um, how few people vote. And... You keep thinking it's about 
you know, it should be, I mean, there are countries where the like democratic voting is such a exciting new concept or such an ingrained part of the culture that, um, that you get like a really large percentage of the population votes. But here we get about half, Mm. um, a little more than half of Americans go out to vote. So when you think about there being three and three and a half, 350, 400, how many millions of Americans are there? Um, I, I always think of it as a, uh, as a 300 million person country, but we're three, 326 million, yeah. 766,748. Yeah. We've gained 26 million since last I checked. But if you think about that, not all of those people are eligible to vote. A lot of them are children. And so of the, the eligible to vote population, only half go to the polls. So during election season, there is, there's always a lot of energy like around the idea that what we need to do is activate the people to, that aren't voting and get them to vote. If you think back to the MTV era of like rock the vote. Yes. That, that was that, like Bill Clinton time period. Right. Right. And that was like, and he like came, get, he like, he like came on and did like a little fireside chat with the MTV generation. And like, I remember watching that. And being like super impressed that he like, yes, that like we had a presidential candidate that knew what MTV was and acted like he watched it and Uh. was willing to, you know, sit in front of the young, the, the, the youngs and talk to them in a language that they, we could understand. I was fairly impressed with that. I thought that was, that was pretty cool. It was like, hey, fellow kids. Right. Get out get out and rock the vote. That's, that's right. Yeah. And that, so that has been a popular, uh, a sort of popular thing ever since, ever since then. Um, let's get young people out to vote. Now, there are similar, similar uh, groups that are like, let's get rural black people out to vote. Sure. Let's get, do you think um, there's a lot of John, are there a lot of like 19 year old, 20 year old college kids that are truly too busy to go vote? No. Or does it just, it doesn't, does it not seem cool? No kid is too busy to vote. Right. Uh, They may think they are, but no, no one is too busy to vote. There's always, Oh, uh, voting is not, that hard or going to take up that much time. Right. It is a, it is a responsibility. No, I think there are just a lot of people that feel like voting isn't for them. They don't, they don't, um, follow the issues closely enough that when they look at a ballot, it makes any sense and they don't want to, they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to, I mean, you know, most people I don't think know what a state legislature does. Or certainly like what a district attorney does or, I mean, all those are jobs that you kind of have to know what they do in order to know what you'd want. Like one of the things my dad taught me was in general, 
in the in the old way of thinking politically, mm-hmm. you don't want a liberal in the role of district attorney, a public prosecutor. You do not want a liberal as a prosecutor. And my dad learned this when he ran for prosecutor oh. <laughs> here in the West. And he went to the governor who was a friend and a me- the governor at the time, um, Warren Magnuson was a mentor of my dad's and had, you know, my, uh, Warren Magnuson was a family friend and my, when my dad was a little kid, he kind of, you know, would sit on his knee and as he grew up and became political, Maggie was like a, you know, shepherded him through and my dad was elected to the legislature in the late forties and, you know, Maggie was just like, uh, he was a larger than life figure. And my dad was running for prosecutor and he went to see the governor and Maggie was like, let me ask you a question, Dave. Let's say a guy is like, yeah, a guy has committed a crime. And um, you are putting him on trial for the crime. And you found out that he had a rough childhood. Right. Would you factor that into your, your, your decision to prosecute the case? And my dad was like, well, yes, of course. I mean, if he's had a tough upbringing, I mean, that definitely, you know. You want to look at the whole lifetime, the whole human, look at the whole yeah, human just, being. Decide whether prosecuting him is in the interests of the people. If he's a, you know, if he can be rehabilitated, blah, 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 liberal talk. And the governor said, Dave, no, that is not what we ask prosecutors to do. The prosecutor does not take into consideration whether or not the perpetrator had a rough childhood. The judge takes that into consideration. Mm -hmm. That is the case that the defense attorney makes. But the prosecutor in his job in the interest of the state is to punish wrongdoers. And this is why traditionally, even in liberal communities, you vote for a prosecutor that is – and the fact that the district attorney is a – is a, uh, elected job is one of the, you know, interesting things in a, in a, in my community, at least, you know, um, because you vote in, it's a political job. You vote in, a, an attorney that's going to set a certain tone in your city. But if you vote in a really liberal district attorney, you find that the that the system of the courts isn't working very well to this is, this is traditional, you know, like nowadays everything's up in the air. Everything is, everything's bass awkward. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, li- liberal communities feel like, I mean, for sure you're not going to find a leftist district attorney in Abilene. So, so, you know, li- liberal towns no longer know exactly what they're supposed to do. There is no, there is no sort of centrist path through politics anymore. It doesn't seem. But so in order to effectively like look at a ballot, you have to have 
mean, some sort of, uh, of method of interpreting it. And in Seattle, we have the Stranger newspaper, which... Right, I've heard of that. From the very beginning, the Stranger, every election, will publish an election guide. And they will go through and they'll just tell you which... They'll explain why they're endorsing candidates. But then they'll basically print a sample ballot and say, just vote like this. If you're part of the stranger community and if you're a liberal and if you follow, if you believe in the same politics that we do, here's how we would vote. Here's your guide for how to vote. And if you want to go down and read all the things and decide for yourself that this guy and and that gal don't represent you, then you can vote a different way. But this is your general guide because there are a lot of things on a ballot, you know, dog catcher and all these referenda that are worded in such a way to make them very confusing. Like vote no on I 42 if you support teachers. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> turn, <laughs> turns out that I 42 totally fucks teachers. Right. 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 And fucks the community. But you know, it's like, no vote for I 79. If you want to, if you want babies made into now, do you, do you paving guys, stones. <laughs> do you guys have like people standing out outside the, the uh the the voting buildings like with their signs or talking to you or shouting at you as you walk in so in seattle which is a which is a majority democrat city and and a vast majority democrat city there isn't that kind of outside the polls like um energy because particularly in a national election, right? There's no, nobody is standing out inside of a, a polling place on Capitol Hill saying vote for Trump. You know, it, w- right. it wouldn't make any sense. And the other, the other elections that are at stake are, um, there's really never a question w- which way Seattle is going to vote. Now internally, like city council candidates, I mean, maybe somebody is out there, but always very politely like, please vote for my candidate right at the end here. You know, it's not, there would never be any, uh, any like yelling because, because what happens here, like we have a candidate for the, uh, for Congress, a guy named Dino Rossi, who's a Republican uh, operative. He's run for governor. He's run, he's run for election like three or four times. He's lost every time. And he's lost because he's just, he's a bad candidate. I mean, he's a handsome guy. He's a, he's a, um, his politics are in line with, with his party, but he's just not a good, he would be a bad politician. He is a bad politician. Yeah. But for whatever reason, he's got that combination of, you know, he's handsome and he's got a certain amount of charisma and they just keep putting him up for election. I don't know how many times, uh, they'll keep doing it, but He's now running for a congressional seat in a district that goes either way. They're not a, they're not in the city. They're a suburban district and they voted for Obama, but they also voted for Trump and they voted for this. And sometimes they go this way. And so (laughs) like districts like that, there's a lot of excitement because Washington is not a, Seattle is a Democrat city, but Washington's not a Democrat state. 
I'm looking right now. I uh, for Washington State politics. It said in 2016 for the presidential election, it was 54.3 percent Democratic and uh, and 38.1 percent Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for the gubernatorial election results, same year, 54.4 percent Democratic, 45.6 percent Republican. This is not for Seattle. This is for Washington State. Washington, right? Yeah. So Washington is very seldom going to elect a national, uh, a national candidate that is not a Democrat, right? But in our state legislature, and in um, and sending people to the to the House from Washington State. There are lots and lots of parts of Washington that were very, very Republican. And so politics here is, you know, it's, it's very regional. It's not like wh- when you go to the state legislature, it's like these are the candidates from Western Washington and they all think that um, we should save the whales and these are the candidates from the Eastern Washington and they all think that we should drill for oil on the whales. We should drill the whales for oil. <laughs> right. Um, so, so I, I, so somebody reached out to this guy, John McRae, who is the singer of the band cake. Oh yeah. Is a guy that is very politically active and uh, has been for a long time. And he and I have crossed paths a few times over the years and, uh, I like him, you know, he's a, he's a good sort, smart and he reached out and said, I'm doing this get out the vote thing and I want you to do a do something, you know, get out get out the vote. And the assumption being that if you get enough people, you know, it's rock the vote, basically. Right. Like all the people that are sitting on the fence who are aware of voting but feel like, meh, it's so much trouble to get out of the house that day and I've got mm, I gotta get my hair done or I don't understand what's going on. I don't like the I don't like the current politics, but I feel like Maybe the way to avoid it is just avoid it entirely, like disengage. I mean, there's a lot of disengagement. There's a lot of, I think there are probably a lot of young people that feel, um, as I did, that there was so much about the United States that felt bankrupt to them that somehow protesting uh, the brokenness of the United States by not voting was somehow kind of a smart move or a, or like, um, you know, it's the opposite of a protest vote where you vote for Ralph Nader or Jill Stein or something, somebody you know that isn't going to win but that you vote for to make a point. It's like something way, way worse than that, which is like I'm not participating in this broken system. It's sort of like, well, that's not really effective. And so John McRae and the and like-minded people, and, and if you go on Twitter or Instagram right now, every single person I know is like, get out and vote. And, you know, like really making a lot of noise about voting. Yeah. And I, I thought long and hard about it. And I honestly, on the one hand, I feel like anybody that, anybody that would take advice from me of that kind that would, that as they're scrolling through the internet would see me going 
vote thumbs up smile twinkle mm-hmm. you know yeah um all of those people already know how i feel about voting already know that i want them to vote i i'm pretty sure i don't think anybody listening to this program would, would be like surprised that you said that they needed yeah, to go vote yeah right wondering like i wonder what john radwick thinks about voting and i don't think that you know i don't think i have the the power to um to be like the tipping point for anybody who's thinking i should probably vote today but and you know a lot of people like Weird Al told me to vote and Jason Nardisi and David Reese all told me to vote. But, you know, it wasn't until I saw John with his thumbs up that I realized, yeah, I should get out. You know, I just don't, I don't, I feel like there's a lot of theater now in the, in, on the part of the people in my community where we're just talking to one another. We're just posting those pictures for for each other you know like i'm doing my part it's like are are what are you doing what are we doing what is our part you know like there david reese sat and as far as i can tell like printed up i mean he, he sat and wrote letters to voters which is pretty amazing yeah you know like just random voters not david reese fans um, there are people who are doing, who are really, really engaged, but just, you know, making a video that says, I want you to vote. It feels a little bit like the, like the, like the politics of now, just to like put a post on Facebook and you, and you feel like, well, I, you know, my work here is done. My, my, my contribution, I've made my contribution and it feels, I, I, I forget it was it was in the last election, not the not the 2016 one, but whatever the last little election that happened nationally mm-hmm. that I sent out a tweet and I was like, "Hey, is there anyone?" Oh, it was there was a there was a, a an election in Alabama that had everyone's attention uh, between like a good candidate and a bad one, and my my internet feed was just full of people just excoriating the bad candidate and pleading with people to vote for the good candidate. And I said, you know, Hey, um, everybody that follows me, like, can you retweet this tweet and see if I can get a reply, (laughs) a single reply from any Alabama voter who is considering voting for candidate bad. Like, I just want to hear from one. I'm not, I'm not assuming that I have a follower that is considering voting for them. I want everybody to retweet this and see if we can get one, get to one single person. Right. And it got retweeted a lot. And I heard from a lot of Alabama voters, but they were all voting already for a candidate. Good. Mm -hmm. I heard from a lot of people who wrote and said, I retweeted it. And I know that there are people in my family, people who read my tweets who are voting for candidate bad. Let's see if they reply. But no one ever did. I never in that whole experiment got a single person that was like, yeah, I'm voting for candidate bad. What's it to you? And there were a lot of, there was, you know, a certain amount of 
suggestion that like, well, they might have read that tweet, but they're probably not going to reply because they don't want the, they don't want the, uh, trouble. Right. You know, they just right. don't want to deal with it. They don't want to en- enter into the fray. Right. But one presumes if that's true, they're probably not, they're probably also not swayed by tweets that are like vote for candidate good or you suck vote candidate bad does that, is- i mean does that work on anybody are there people oh. who are really deciding who they're going to vote for based on what somebody tweeted on twitter and, and if they are god help us well maybe i mean one this is one of the things right when you extend the franchise to everyone you like, are, are there people who really care what other people are, who other people are voting for? Like, does that? Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's horrible. I don't people, care who anyone else votes for. I'm going to go in and vote for who I think should win. Well, but I mean, the hell cares about, what someone else is voting for? It's, well, what is who fashion, cares? Dan? Why do people all wear, why do people all wear Red Sox hats? I well, mean, but everybody that's, cares the, about what other people. Nobody should wear a Red Sox hat. But the point is, if you're, if, if you're wearing a nice sweater. Yeah, that that's not just for your benefit. That's for the benefit of the other people that you're going to encounter in the day because they they're going to be stuck looking at you. Right. I so if, if someone's stuck looking at you, at least you want to show them something nice. But nobody yeah. knows how you voted unless you decide to share it. And and my opinion, nobody should really be sure. We talked about that. Nobody should be sharing their votes. It's private. Well, yeah, except that if you don't, I mean, I can't get inside the head of anyone else and and know what their idea of how of what our country is. So what you know, it's such a it's such a complicated puzzle, and every person walking around has a different vision of what America is and what the world is, and that those different visions are. Um, it's so impossible to get in and decode. It, it's we, we all think we're speaking the same language, but we're not. You know, if your idea of America, if the if the education you received in school taught you that America was a country built on slavery and American Indian genocide, and that every piece of property is stolen and every bit of American ingenuity is just the product of exploiting labor, Mm -hmm. then you look at American institutions and see them in a certain light. And if you believe that America is the land of opportunity and Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered it and planted a flag and that America is a Christian nation and that we are the, you know, we're the smartest people and we have invented all the great things and the world looks to us as a leader. Then you look at American institutions in a completely different way from the very, very root of your thinking. And the two, those two people, the only way they have to express their differences is electorally, I mean, is like, well, you vote for candidate A or candidate B. And the the candidates are just completely insufficient proxies for, for taking those two worldviews and having them like share any common ground. If you, I mean, those two worldviews I described 
are super commonplace um, mainstream mentalities. Now, they might not be each the mainstream, but mm-hmm. both of those, I mean, there are tens and tens and tens of thousands of people that believe those two sides, you know, those two ideologies. Well, where is their common ground in, in understanding like how the courts work based on those two worldviews? Like who are you going to put on the state Supreme court? Who are you going to, what, what, what ballot initiative are you going to choose for how the roads are, you know, how we tax to fund road building? There isn't a direct connection. But if you're coming from one or the other side there, you know, you're trying to figure out, well, which, which ones, which one of these capital improvement levies best (laughs) expresses, you know, the fact that America is a, is like a bankrupt slave economy or which one expresses that America is a, is a Christian nation with a manifest destiny. And there isn't really a, a, a national conversation anymore where those two worldviews, where anyone is making an attempt to um, bring those two worldviews into a room and find a common story. Because they're just, where, where do you find a common story between those two? There isn't... I don't think a place where you can sit down and go, well, but we all agree, don't we? That like due process is a good thing. I mean, I, I suppose, I suppose we do. We ad hoc it like that. Like right. is due process a good thing? And both sides go, I guess I don't really know what it is, but sounds good. I mean, let's say do both sides agree that the cops should read you your rights when they arrest you. <laughs> and on the one hand, you're going to say, you know, the one person's going to say, there shouldn't even be any cops. And the other side is going to say, we don't need to read people their rights. If they're criminals, then they're already guilty. It's like, okay, well, let's see. Where do we, <laughs> where do we find a place where, where voting is anything other than a, uh, you know, like a stick fight like that. Uh, so I think a lot of people go to the polls and they're not voting on the things that are on the ballot. What they're voting is they're trying to figure out which bubbles to fill out mm-hmm. are the closest to promulgating the ideology that they are invested in. And, you know, it's a different style. You know, horse trading in politics used to be well, I don't want to vote for this, uh, this guy, but you know, what I need to do is get the, is get the land use laws changed in order that I can build my supermarket. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna vote for this guy cause he, you know, cause he's just the right amount of corrupt. I don't like him. I don't like his politics, but I need, I need this, I need this bill, you know, that kind of horse trading. Well, now the horse trading is just like, I don't like this guy, but I believe he's going to bring a Christian nation onto this earth, right? Like that's the evangelical thing with Trump. They don't, I mean, he's obviously like 
immoral, but he's the closest candidate to bringing forth a, an idea of global ideology. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, I, I, I have not been very vocal on politics except really on this show um, because not because I've grown especially cynical, but because I don't, I don't know what the voice is now. Um, there, I mean, whenever I, whenever I talk like this, there are people listening who think that I am, uh, that what I'm saying is both sides have good points. You know what I mean? Like this is a, this is a rhetorical flourish that's popular now uh, among leftists, which is to say at any point, if you talk about politics as though, um, as though Trump voters have any sense of reason behind their choices, you know, as though they're, they have a worldview that's functional. Um, you're basically an apologist. You're an apologist for you're you're doing this mainstream media thing where you're saying, well, you know, both sides have a point. And that's a, that's a, a thing that, that like young leftists now it's a fashion to dismiss people who say, um, who say anything other than, uh, who, who, who make any political pronunciations other than denouncing the, the current regime. And I just can't, it wasn't the way I was brought up to think. And so I, I can't help, but want to talk about politics rather than just scream an ideological, uh, viewpoint. And, but I really don't like being attacked by leftists, particularly not as a, you know, uh, as a Nazi apologist, right? because I refuse to preface every sentence with a denunciation of Hitler or whatever, or of Trump or I think, well, I think what happened was somewhere along the line, you know, critical, critical thinking is very difficult to teach. But it became a fashion in academics to say, we're not teaching history or science. We're teaching critical thinking. In the, I'm talking about in the liberal arts. We're not just teaching history. We're teaching critical thinking. Right. You heard that a lot. And it sounds amazing. And it makes everybody feel really smart. Uh, we would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace. They are our exclusive sponsor for today. Isn't that nice? And you can say thanks to them and support the show by visiting squarespace.com slash roadwork. Let me tell you a little bit about them. They help you turn your cool idea into a new website. You can showcase your work. You can sell products and services of all kinds. You can promote your physical business, your online business announce an upcoming event, a special project. Because the reality of this is most of us, me included, we don't want to make a website 
And the reality is we probably couldn't do it as well as the designers and developers that work at Squarespace could do it because this is, this is what they spend their whole life doing. You probably don't want to spend your whole life making websites. I know I don't. I want to do that thing that I like doing, whether it's making a podcast or you know, whatever. People who have iOS apps, photographers, musicians, artists. Just business people who want a really nice landing page or homepage for themselves, for their company. Those are the things. Then they want to go and work, work on making that company great. Work on making your art great. Work on making that thing that you really like doing. Don't worry about the website for it. And that's what Squarespace is there for. They make it so easy because they've got these beautiful templates created by world-class designers. They've got, like I said, you can sell stuff with their built-in e-commerce And you can customize all of this stuff with just a few clicks. You can change the look and the feel. You can change the whole design of the website with just a few clicks. It's amazing. And even if I pick the same template that you pick for your site, those little customizations can make it your own. So you don't have just some cookie cutter site that looks like everyone else's. It's all there for you to go and check out with 24-7 award-winning customer support. You have to worry about security. They handle all of that. They even have built-in SEO, analytics, and they sell domains with over 200 extensions for you to choose from. Pretty awesome. You're ready to start a new business, make it stand out. You have some cool idea, you get something you're dreaming to do, do it with Squarespace. Destiny is calling. Go to squarespace.com roadwork and you'll get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code ROADWORK, one word, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Can't beat that. That URL, again, just go into the URL, supports the show, and it's a great way to learn more about Squarespace. Squarespace.com slash ROADWORK, promo code ROADWORK to save 10% off your first purchase. Thanks, Squarespace. But the problem with teaching critical thinking is it's super hard because it requires a lot of discipline to not provide conclusions. When you're teaching critical thinking, you're teaching a, teaching a, a, a methodology. And the, and the result of it is that you get to the end of a course of study mm-hmm. and the students go, so what's the answer? And you say, that's not the, pro- that's not the question. Right. The question is not what's the answer. The question is how do you think through problems and and arrive at conclusions and how, and how do you how do you put those conclusions to work how do you reconcile them against history and it isn't to say that critical thinking hopes that every single person come up with their own personal answer but it isn't if you're really invested in teaching critical thinking you are not providing solutions. You know, you're not saying, and critical thinking inevitably produces this conclusion. But that requires a lot of discipline from teachers and students to come out of a class feeling like you know less than you knew when you went in. Which is how I always rate a like a great college class. Do I feel like I know less <laughs> Than I did when I walked in because what that means is that you, it's a good way to think of it. Yeah. You walked in thinking you knew a bunch of shit about a thing and you spent an entire 
quarter or semester studying and you realized you didn't know. You didn't know nearly as much as you thought. A lot of the things you thought you knew are wrong or at least don't hold up. And now you walk out and you're like, well, shit, if I thought I knew so much about a thing and it turns out I know so little, that's probably true about a lot of the things I think I know a lot about. Right. And that's how you start to become an educated person by, by learning how little you know. But that's, that, that requires a lot of heart, you know, it requires a lot of fucking guts. And it's hard for teachers. It's hard to grade whether or not a person has had that experience. Mm-hmm. And students don't want, don't like it. They go to the teacher and they say, I'm in this class and I want you to tell me what the story is and I want to write it down, get a grade and graduate. So what ends up happening is that you have this cult, this culture in academics of teaching critical thinking, but at the last minute, like they teach critical thinking methods, but then at the end, the teacher just can't resist providing a conclusion saying, well, and if you use critical thinking, then you will inevitably conclude this, this or that, you know, and, and whether the, whether the teacher offers that subtly or explicitly, the students are begging for it. They're not dissatisfied. They're like, thank God you've explained to me the process of critical thinking. And at the end, the critical thinking has demonstrated to me that all of the thoughts that I already had were true. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I now have a system where that I can use to justify my beliefs. And so you get a generation of people who have not had the transformation of having their ideas knocked out of their head, but they have been given the rhetorical tools of quote unquote critical thinking to just reinforce their, their sense uh, that they are, that they're correct and they're living. They are, they're correct and people that share their beliefs are correct and they have science to back it up. So, so what should have been a generation of people that were, um, were enlightened by their education, it, it really, they, they really came out the other side kind of having learned nothing. And this is part of the democratization of universities, right? You can't really export critical thinking to the mass. And it's a liberal dream, right? To create a, to create a utopia by education, by the method of education. And if everyone learns to have critical thinking, then we will, then our civilization will lift up. Because we'll have all of these people that are that are newly like um, that that finally understand how little they knew, and so all that does is spark conversation, and those conversations produce new ideas, and those new ideas take us to higher places. But what you end up with is, well, there are an awful lot of universities, and we don't have time for everybody to learn critical thinking. So what we're going to do is just we're going to just kind of cookie cutter this 
this critical thinking um, syllabus, and we're going to send, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids into the world, newly graduated, uh, and hope that you know this toolkit will will create um, a real critical thinking somewhere down the line, you know. <laughs> Uh, so what, so what do I have to share with the, with all of those students where I feel like in a way the opportunity was lost. The opportunity when they were 18, 19, 20 was lost and now they are 30 and they believe and everything in everything they learn in college reinforces that belief that they have that um, that they have that capacity to weigh the information and make um, informed judgments and come to conclusions and they feel very secure in those conclusions and they also feel like they're the intellectual class or they're the um, they're the people that are trying to bring a better world into the, into existence but they're doing it by they're doing it not by starting from a presumption of their own ignorance starting from the presumption that conversation that that sharing ideas that having ideas in conflict and trying to resolve those conflicts in a neutral atmosphere using history using science to, um, to create new ideas. That isn't their method. Their method is to, to use all those terms, to use science, to use rhetoric, to confirm their ideas. And once their ideas are confirmed, they're not interested at all in hearing other ideas because those are wrong and it's been proved. So that's super pessimistic. Well, I think it's just an, I think, well, I mean, on one hand I could say this is just an era, but on the other hand, it, I mean, you find that an era determines the course of a, of a people for, a hundred years or longer, mm -hmm. you know, civilizations do go into a, into decline because something in their, something in their core is broken. Um, and, and that is super pessimistic. I mean, I can't tell you that, uh, I can't tell you that it's all going to be okay or that 10 years from now we're going to shake off this fog and there's going to be a renewed interest in um, in finding a common path. I don't. I honestly don't know. Looking at it from my perspective, I still see that that is. I still see that path through the through the forest or that multiplicity of paths. But I don't see anybody interested in it. I see the people that were interested because the, this again, it's very hard. 
You know, it requires a lot of discipline and people that were trained that way have a very hard time explaining it. It's hard to, to come up against someone who's also very smart, who also is very articulate, who believes they have all the answers and say, well, you know, I was trained not to think I had all the answers, but to think that maybe the answers were, you know, very flex. It was to, to think that even the idea that there was an answer was kind of a, an, uh, something we needed to really interrogate. The, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to shout that at someone across a picket line. Um, it's even hard to say that in a, in a public meeting or even in a, over, even over dinner with a friend mm -hmm. to say like, well, I mean, I know that you, all the things that you're saying, I agree with, but I kind of don't think that that's the, that that's the route, you know, like the route to getting to where you want to go isn't isn't just feeling like you have the answers and that your opponents are like actively wrong. Yeah. And, and yeah. well, and, and dumb. I yeah. mean, your opponents only think the way they do because they're ignorant or racist worst. I mean, ignorant, racist, bigoted, though that's the only way your opponents could possibly hold their, the values that they claim to hold is that they are bigots. If that's your opening, salvo in a debate or even in a conversation. And so, and I, you know, so I sit in those situations and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm here to argue with you. Are you operating from the presumption that I'm a bigot, like a secret bigot, even though, even though I believe that you and I have the same goals ultimately, but I'm going to argue that you, you know, for instance, like that you shouldn't, that you shouldn't punch Nazis. But, but that what that means is that I'm a, like a secret white supremacist or not even a secret one, but an open one. It's crazy. You, you can't, I can't engage with that kind of world. And, and sadly there isn't any movement that I can find of people who are like, you know what, why don't we all like, why don't we go over here and talk? Like, there's no Slack channel, at least as far as I can tell, full of, you know, where, where I could go sit and talk with like-minded people about politics where the conclusions weren't all foregone. A lot has been lost. A lot has been lost. Yeah. In a really, in just very recent years, and and all of the terms. I mean, it, the, Obama came out the other day and said, "Like, are we really talking about civility? Like, this guy is a, this guy is a, what, when we're up against like white supremacists, like let's not waste time talking about civility." And he was cheered for that, uh, because, you know, because it's nice to see Obama get partisan. And it's nice to feel like he's the last reasonable person. But I'm just, you know, but, but what happens is the word civility then becomes a word that we use to mock people. Oh, are you interested in civility? 
Well, meanwhile, the Nazis are cramming their dicks in your ear. <laughs> like, how does that feel? Are you going to be, are you going to, oh, are you going to use the right fork while the Nazis are pissing in your food? It's like, well, you know, that's real clever. But like the day that you start to feel like civility is um, naive or civility is uh, complacent or worse, that civility is is a form of appeasement or collaborationist that to, to, to argue for manners and civil discussion is to collaborate with the enemy who are like clearly and vocally opposed to civility, but to argue for civility is to be on their side rather than on the right side, the correct side, like something's lost. And I don't think that's what Obama necessarily was saying, but he used, you know, he used this buzzword and it's very easy to feel emotionally like what we should be doing is firing rockets on the Capitol. But my God, that's not what this is. That's not what this United States is. And, you know, and if you fire rockets on the Capitol, you will lose and you will be sad and we will not have a better world than we have now. And civility is a component of it. And I am not saying that you should shake hands with Nazis and invite them into your home and feed them. But, you know, civility is not a small word. It doesn't just mean it does. It is not a, it is not a weak word. You know what I mean? It's not a word of weakness and people feel like it is. They feel like being civil is to be weak and what we need to do is be strong and strong is angry and strong is violent, strong is confrontational and civility and patience and um, nonviolence are weak things. And if the centuries have taught us anything. It is the opposite that violence is weak and that nonviolence is strong. Like that is what we know. And that's hard. Nonviolence is strong and hard and it's strong because it's hard and it's hard because it's strong. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like (laughs) I think, I think so. To stand there while someone is spitting in your face and not hit them mm-hmm. is harder, mm-hmm. but stronger. And to scream at someone and spit in their face is weak. And yet, and yet now it's so it's in such a short amount of time that has been, that lesson has been forgotten. It has been cheapened. You know, I got a letter from a, from a, a, a guy that I I think is a great guy on the internet who very, very quickly fell into this posture of, I mean, telling me what Martin Luther King's uh, uh, writings on violence really meant, which was not that he was against violence, but that he was, you know, and this is all stuff he learned in college. Um, this debate between 
Malcolm X and Martin Luther King in the early sixties. And there, and the, and the two ideologies of those two men in terms of what constituted the civil rights movement and what its opinion about, about nonviolent versus violent action and, and the communities that those two guys represented and then their paths together through the sixties toward one another and not away, but it's all, it's all been sort of shattered and crystallized. And if you're taking a 20th century history class at some university, you're going to get a version of that, that the, that the book you're reading or the teacher, uh, the professor you have, they're going to, they're going to tell you, oh, it turned out that Martin Luther King wasn't really nonviolent, or it turned out that Malcolm X, uh, actually wasn't in favor of violence or whatever story they want to tell. And some, you know, I got some white kid on the internet telling me about it because he's upset, you know, he's upset because he doesn't know what to do and because he's scared. And, and he doesn't know what he honestly doesn't know what to do except yell. He just yell at people, yell at people that he admires and that are, that share his politics, but they're not doing it right. You know? They're not because because nonviolence is hard and violence is easy. Punching Nazis is easy. Not punching Nazis is harder. Mm, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. But where where's the political party that, you know, where you can talk about that stuff? Where where who is standing up right now with a banner and saying, No, don't forget what we know. Don't forget what the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries taught us. Don't forget that technology and machines make all of this much more dangerous, not easier. Make it dangerous. Like the the machines make it possible to kill millions of people over uh, on ideological grounds. The machines make it possible now to... I mean, the next big war is going to be bad because of machines. We saw it in the last couple wars. And so you don't, I mean, this was what happened after 9-11 where there was blood in the air. The, the, the feeling that we needed vengeance was so strong. And nobody, I mean, the liberals failed utterly. And I'm talking about the liberal intelligentsia. This was their, this was their death throw. Mm. They failed utterly to make a national case for the fact that attacking Iraq was the, in, in, in a lot of ways, the end of the American epoch, you know, the, this was the end. If we, if we went in and had a, this vengeance war. We, we lost our moral standing. We lost our, we lost the high ground. And nobody made that case. The case that you heard about in the newspapers and in the Senate, I mean, every, the, the, the conversation was all about little piddly shit. And, it was because the the left was afraid to stand up and say, 
no, we understand that war and vi- every war has taught us that this is not the solution. We're going into a, we're going to start a war with an entire quadrant of the world because some, you know, some tiny, tiny minority of fanatics pulled off a good raid. Like, where are the adults? Where are the people that went to college here in this equation? Well, they all were, you know, they all were scared to stand up and say, there is no, there is no option here other than not to attack Iraq. But, you know, everybody fell in line and then fell in line for eight years. And, you know, the little, the little protests that, gained steam by the end. I'm talking about mainstream protests on the, on the, the fringe. No one wanted those wars fringe of left or right. You know, where do we start again and say like, look, when Martin Luther King died, he did not become just a portrait on the wall with some inspirational quotes. I mean, my daughter knows more about Martin Luther King than she does about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln combined because every year in school, they talk about Martin Luther King all day and night. And they do because he's got some great inspirational quotes and he makes the teachers feel good. And he makes everybody feel like we're, we have, uh, he's turned into a, a, um, he's an icon but no one feels like that work is ongoing. They feel like they, they feel like they understand what the work was, but, but they don't. Or, I mean, the, the hard work, imagine that man, imagine that man walking every day into a world where somebody, you know, somebody was going to shoot him or sick a dog on him or hit him with a club. And he just, he he walked into the face of that every day and brought thousands of people with him and empowered thousands of people by virtue of him just standing there with with like calm strength. Mm. Find somebody doing that now. I mean, I can find you a hundred thousand people that claim the legacy of of that movement. But find somebody with that kind of fucking balls. Or or Gandhi. You know, find somebody like that. And that's what we need. That was the movement. That was what the 20th century produced. Could be you, though. That could be your your calling. Can't be. I'm not that person. I don't have that strength. You know, I can can witness. I can be in the, I can be behind that person. And I can use whatever power I have to contribute. But you have to be a person of like tremendous personal conviction. And I don't, I'm, and that's not, that's not what God put me here to do, to be a person with conviction of that kind. I'm too, um, relativistic. But 
but I, but I look for, you know, I look to that flag wherever it, wherever it comes next. And we're living in an era of demagogues. This is, this is the opposite of that. This is the era where, where the, um, the idea that the idea is that the democratic side or the liberal side needs to get an angry, um, an angry warrior to match the angry warriors on the other side. Mm. And that that's what the battle is. The battle is two armies clashing outside of Minas Tirith. And that's not what it is. It is an army trying to attack a, a movement of people who refuse to fight who refuse to fight with sticks over lofty ideals and we'll take the, we'll take the casualties because the lofty ideals are the sword. 